Uh, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm uh, grateful to be jumping back into the book of Genesis with you this morning, and uh, we're going to dive right into Genesis chapter 16. Um, so let's take a breath and prepare our minds and hearts to hear the word of God together. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not given birth to any children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from having children, please sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a family by her. Abram did what Sarai told him. So after Abram had lived in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, Abram's wife, gave Hagar, her Egyptian servant, to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Once Hagar realized she was pregnant, she despised Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, you have brought this wrong on me. I gave my servant into your embrace, but when she realized that she was pregnant, she despised me. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram said to Sarai, since your servant is under your authority, do to her whatever you think best. Then Sarai treated Hagar harshly, so she ran away from Sarai. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring of water in the wilderness the spring that is along the road to Shur. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. I will greatly multiply your descendants, the angel of the Lord added, so that they will be too numerous to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant and are about to give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your painful groans. He will be a wild donkey of a man. He will be hostile to everyone, and everyone will be hostile to him. He will live away from his brothers. So Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, here, I have seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It is located between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, whom Abram named Ishmael. Now, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us? about your word. Lord, we need your help to see what you want us to see in this passage. We need your spirits power to hear what you want us to hear. 
Lord, we, we long for you to shine your light through your word into our lives and our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is a hard story that we just heard. I, I hope you felt that. It's a, you know, especially when we think in the 21st century and, and look back on this story, you have, you know, the, the father of faith, the father of the chosen people and his wife, Sarai, and then they, they sort of conscript their, you know, maidservant, Hagar, who was probably given to them in Egypt into this situation, and it, and it gets messy. It falls apart. It's, it's a hard story. It, it's messy. It's the story of sin unfolding in a small scale. It's a, it's a microcosm of perhaps what we experience in many ways on a large scale. And it's also the story of redemption. But the redemption that's in the story is a little hard to hear, too. It's, it's painful sin, and it's painful redemption, or at least the beginning of redemption. And so this little chapter, it's kind of the whole Bible in one little chapter, in a way. And so I want to just take, it, take us through it. It sounds like a simple outline for my sermon, sin and redemption. <laughs> uh, but maybe I'll make it complicated. <laughs> so I, I want to look at sin first uh, as we see it in this passage. Uh, and we're going to think about sin in two ways. Sin is both a, a responsible guilt. There's something that is willfully done for which the party is guilty and sin is also an enslaving power. So, responsible guilt. Remember, the first people to hear these stories are Israelites who spent most of their lives as slaves in Egypt, and now they're out, and now this God is, is speaking to them, and, he's, and Genesis is him giving them some background, who they are, where they came from, you know, what he's like, what he's about. And so the first thing that they would notice is that Abram goes back to Egypt again. The, the place of Egypt and the Egyptians are, are a sensitive topic for the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt. So they are um, immediately, when they're hearing this story, they're like, an Egyptian, wait, you know, don't, don't go back. Abram has already gone to Egypt to escape a famine once when the trees weren't bearing fruit. And now when his wife isn't bearing fruit, he goes back to Egypt again for another kind of famine. So they might already be like, oh, I don't think this is good. I'm, I don't think this is going to go well. But I think we would do well to put ourselves into Sarai and Abram's shoes for a minute. Because what happens initially is not, on the face of it, it's not quite as bad as maybe, maybe we all think. All right, we see an older couple pulling in presumably a younger woman into this situation. But we need to consider 
what happens here. Uh, first, Sarai has probably already gone through menopause. Her, it's, as far as she knows, common sense, it is no longer possible for her to become pregnant. All right? So that's a factor she has to consider. It's just not possible. Secondly, God has repeated this promise to Abram multiple times, three times probably, uh, where he has told Abram, you will have descendants. He even got specific in the last chapter. The descendants will come from your body. But if you look back from chapter 12 through to chapter 15, Sarah is actually never mentioned in the promises. So, uh, so now we've got two factors. Sarai doesn't seem able to bear children, and God never mentions Sarai in the promises. So, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, third, this, this little triangle that develops, is it sounds, it sounds twisted and wrong and bad to us. But culturally, I mean, historians have found all sorts of examples especially with, with like a tribal chief where, you know, there would be many women in his family. He would have many wives. And when, when one woman wasn't able to bear children, he would continue to have other children with other women. And that's going to happen in God's chosen people family again in the Bible. So I'm not saying it's objectively okay what happens. In fact, like, I think some of the values that we project back, it's okay that we do that. We can say, this is pretty inhuman treatment to Hagar. Like, this, this, is, not, this is not good. This doesn't dignify Hagar in any way. But I, I, I am saying that it was a, a normal cultural practice, what's happening here. It, it might even be expected. Fourth, it has occurred to me, as I look at Abram's life and Sarai's life, God really hasn't given them any rules. I mean, we're thinking about the rules that come in the Ten Commandments and in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the commands of Jesus. We, we have this whole set of rules that we project backward. But all, Abram has, he's heard from God a few times, you know, leave your family, go to the land, I'll show you, I'll make you a great nation. And he's kind of repeated those promises a few times. But there's never been any command even about like worshiping other gods, much less marriage and monogamy. So they're, you know, they're making it up as they go. That's the situation that they're in. And, and on top of all of that, Sarai's suggestion, for the most part, not perfectly, is an act of self-sacrifice. Like, she is, she is willingly stepping aside from her role as the matriarch of the chosen people. She, she, she believes the promises that God has made to her husband, Abram. And she, she, in this moment, is saying, I'm willing to not be the mother of the people through whom God is going to bless the nations. Like, in a way, Sarai is like laying down her life in this moment. 
You guys see all of this? So when you look at it from just the first scene, our first glimpse of the scene, I, I give, I want to give Sarai a lot of slack in this. Now she does say, you know, I'll be the mother of the people through Hagar. You know, she still kind of wants her role and position in it. And it's not, you know, it, we're going to find out really quick that her intentions aren't perfect <laughs> in this situation. But we've got the laws of nature, cultural custom, the absence of restrictions from God, room for interpretation in God's promises to Abram, and even this noble act of self-sacrifice. You guys, if this story unfolded differently after the first two verses, we'd think Sarai was a hero. We would. And we'd look at what she did as exemplary for how we ought to lay down our lives in creative ways to bring about God's promises. In fact, I wonder if unknowingly we do treat Sarai like a hero. After all, it seems to me that Christians emulate Sarai all the time. I think we do. We celebrate all of the creative solutions that Christians come up with to do good in the community to do acts of justice, to serve the poor, to, to start a business that has a redemptive edge, to do something creative, to grow the ministry, to draw people into church, whatever. We do this all the time. We, we, we love to find creative ways to usher in the, the new heavens and the new earth. We believe God is redeeming it all, and we want to be part of it. We believe there's this promise that's guaranteed, that's coming. The, the new Eden, the new Jerusalem, you know, the, the, the city of shalom, of God's peace. Like, why not? Let's jo jump in. Let's participate in it. And I feel a real tension talking about this because keep doing that, please. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you, please hear me. I'm not trying to tell you that this story is telling us not to come up with creative ways to serve the Lord and take care of people, okay? Do you not, like everybody nod, please. Okay, you got the good. But, but this is a cautionary tale about the, the manner in which we go about these things. In addition to the fact that Hagar is an Egyptian, which remember is a, is a red flag, um, the, not, nothing against Egyptians now. It's just, red, they've, they've got baggage, okay? So the first hearers and readers of this story would notice a giant clue when we get to verse three. Sarai gave Hagar to her husband and he takes her as his wife and she becomes pregnant. Um, this is almost a direct copy of this little verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where Eve takes the fruit and eats it and gives it to her husband, and he eats it. Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to Abram. It's a big clue. This is another example of eating the forbidden fruit. 
in, in chapter 3, they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I argued back then, and I'll remind you, God doesn't want us not to have the knowledge of good and evil. He just wants to be the one who gives it to us. He, he, he wants us in a position where we will learn in his good way the knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want the chosen people not to come about through Abram. But this is them acting in their own sense of right and wrong again. Abram participates in it as readily as Adam. Now, one of the, uh, one of the guiding books for the way um, Littleton Christian Church tries to do ministry, especially in our community, but, but right here in our congregation too, is a book called When Helping Hurts. If you haven't read it, I, I really recommend it. It's, it's a book you know, it seems like it's about poverty alleviation, but it's really about how we apply the gospel to one another. And, you know, you can draw from the title that the book is going to argue that there's a, there's a certain way of helping that's actually hurting, right? When helping hurts. And the catchphrase of this book practically is, good intentions are not enough. That's what it says throughout the book. Good, good intentions are not enough. In fact, how often is it that that our good intentions in our lives end up blowing up in our faces, right? I thought, it was, I thought it was doing something good, but our good intentions end up reinforcing brokenness. I mean, when it comes to poverty alleviation, what can often happen is you have people who are materially poor and people who are materially not poor, and the people who are materially not poor end up holding themselves over and against those who are materially poor. One is caught in a constant state of needing the other in a certain way, and the other is feeling like, yeah, I've got life figured out, and I've got what this person needs, instead of there being a mutual submission and learning and serving. The, gosh, the, the church, not just our church, but the big C church, especially in the West, in Europe and the United States, has a, a centuries-long record of missions work in other parts of the world and community development that has created really unhealthy dependencies that are still hamstringing believers all, o- all over the world, waiting for the, the money from the rich white churches from the West. Why does it go wrong? You know, o- oftentimes those all of those relationships, they start with really good intentions, don't they? they? They start with like people sacrificing. I mean, there are people who instead of instead of building up a comfortable retirement, sacrificed dramatically to support some missions work or some poverty alleviation. They were laying down their lives and their well-being. Why does it go wrong? Why do these great ideas often backfire? Well, I can only start to answer that today. I I promise I'm only going to start to answer today. But this is chapter 16 of Genesis, which means, here's my great Bible insight. It's right after chapter 15. Yeah, (laughs) write that down. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so in chapter 15, we get this 
this conversation, this ongoing conversation between Abram and God. And what I noticed as I was studying 15 and what I tried to communicate last week is God is so open to Abram's tough questions. Did you, I mean, if you, if you didn't hear last week or whatever, if, look at that passage. God makes Abram a promise and Abram says, okay, I'm not, like how? How's this gonna, it doesn't seem to be working out. And God graciously answers or gives Abram a reason that he can trust him. And that happens twice in chapter 15. There's this open conversation. That kind of relationship with God is presented as the ideal. God says, this is righteous. This is the way this relationship is supposed to work. This is, this is a return to the garden in a way where Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the day and talk and learn. But Sarai has her idea, and where's God? No one even asks. No one, no one pauses to say, Hey, let's, let's spend a moment in prayer about this. Um, the chosen couple takes matters into their own hands and they never consult God at all. Now, I think back to that group of people in the wilderness. They're wandering in the wilderness after they've been in Egypt. They don't know where they're going. They've been told there's this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And when it stops, you stop. When it goes, you go. And that's how they make their way through the desert. There's this miraculous food that appears on the ground every morning. And they're told, just take enough for today. Don't take, it's your daily bread. Don't store it. Don't try, to, don't try to creatively find ways to preserve it. Just take enough for today. They're told in the Ten Commandments to be content with what they have, not covet, you know, the marriage or the possessions of the people next door. Every move that they make, every new twist in the story, their leader Moses goes either up on a mountain or into a tent and, is, and spends hours or days talking with God before they do anything about it. This is, they're seeing this is the rhythm this is how it works for the people of God. We often think that sin is disobedience. It's an act of disobedience. God said, do A, and I did B. Or I said, no, I won't do A. God said not to eat the fruit, they ate the fruit. That's okay, sure. But I think maybe sin would be better described as an act of independence. And our acts of independence can look really good. They can build up our self-image. They can build our reputation. Uh, they can actually impact people in really good ways. There's people totally for their own sake doing great acts of benevolence in the world. And it's really helping people. Like, that's real. That, that exists. I think that independence, though, is where we, we decide we're going to figure it out ourselves. There's a problem, and I'm going to try to fix it. And if it can't figure out how to fix it, I'll ask God. That's kind of our process. Yet the whole design of the Garden of Eden, that ideal, 
was that people are at our best when we are constantly dependent on God, interdependent on one another. But we're designed to be openly, joyfully, constantly dependent on God. This story presents two ways in bold colors, my way or God's way. It's like C.S. Lewis says, heaven is when we say, Lord, have your way. And hell is when God says to us, fine, have your way. That's it. It is especially when my way seems so noble to me that I am the most dangerous. When I'm really proud of my idea, that's when I'm most at risk of blowing up or getting really twisted when somebody has a problem with it or somebody gets in the way of it. And I wonder if you can relate. That's what happened to Sarai. She has this lovely plan. It all goes according to plan. Hagar gets pregnant fairly quite quickly. And as soon as Hagar realizes she's pregnant and starts to act like she's above her station, starts to disrespect Sarai in some way, we don't really know. Sarai is like, how dare she? Like, she goes to Abram like, this is, this is all your fault. And here we have another parallel to Eden. As soon as the results, the consequences for sin show themselves, what do we do? We turn on each other. We blame each other. She blames Abram. Abram shifts responsibility. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Like, you, you figure it out. This was your idea. Like, you figure it out. And so... Sarai starts treating Hagar in a certain way. She, she starts to mistreat her. And it's the exact same word that God used in chapter 15 when he's telling Abram how the Egyptians would treat his descendants for 400 years. Now it's Sarai treating an Egyptian servant the way the Egyptians will later treat the sons and daughters of Sarai. It strikes me that God is still not on the scene. He never comes to rebuke Abram and Sarai. Did you see that? Did you notice that? There's there's not another Genesis 3 moment where God comes and says, what have you done? All right, because you've done this, here's the curse related to that and whatever. As is ordinarily the case, friends, sin comes with its own punishment. It is its own punishment. It starts to unfold. Sarai acted with self-righteous independence. It seemed noble, but as, as soon as she snaps, we realize, oh, oh, you weren't doing this to be like self-giving and noble. You, you were doing this just to have another way to build up your own glory. Her shalom immediately falls apart. Her relationships fall apart. Sin brings guilt for which Sarai and Abram are responsible. Sin is a responsible guilt. But that's not all. Sin is also an enslaving power. Here's what I mean. When sin happens, it immediately starts to create ripples and other people are caught in the storm. Mixed metaphors, sorry, but you know what I mean. 
As it spreads, other people get stuck in it. As it grows, other people become victims. Sin not only is something that we are responsible for, but we are also victims of it. Caught in this whole mess is this Lady Hagar. She's, she's not perfect in the story. I don't know how she's disrespecting Sarai, but I don't know. But she didn't have a choice to... They probably got her when Abram and Sarai went to Egypt the first time. She's given to them as a gift. Like, here's some, here's some camels and here's this lady. Like, it's a tough, she's in a rough life, you guys. She's left her land, left the home she knows. She does not have a choice whether to be used for procreation in this story. While there is responsible guilt for sin... It also creates a system of oppression, and and history shows us that system expands and multiplies, and it has spread into every culture, every economic system, every family, every neighborhood, and every congregation, and it's it's right here, too. Maybe we could say Hagar should not have despised Sarai, but she's carrying an old man's baby in a land that's not her own, being mistreated by the matriarch. There's this amazing, big, long book about the crucifixion uh, written by an Episcopalian priest, Fleming Rutledge. And uh, she presents first the, the nature of sin in these two ways that I've presented here, that it's responsible guilt, and it's, she calls it an alien power that enslaves, uh, that these two things happen. We don't understand, she says, the, why the crucifixion was as messy and and hard as it was until we understand sin in both of those ways. Atonement must be made for the responsible guilt. And liberation, rescue, must be made for the enslaving power. Abram and Sarai in this story bear the responsibility. Hagar is enslaved by the power. You know, if we don't see sin in both ways, I don't think we'll understand redemption. Let's just think of some examples. You guys could come up with plenty on your own. But what about the, the woman who runs a, a brothel for sex trafficking in Thailand, who her entire childhood, she was used and abused and passed around? Is Where does the enslaving power and the responsible guilt stop? Or... or the boy who grows up in a community that is monoracial and he is taught by his parents, aunts, uncles, pastor, and everyone around him that anyone who is of a different race or a different background is to be feared, is trying to hurt them, and is inferior to them. And when he's 18, he commits a hate crime. Where does the alien power Stop and the responsible guilt begin. Or the woman whose parents never allowed her to process her own emotions. So whenever a disagreement happens, when she is a wife and mother, she either disengages completely and doesn't talk to anyone or explodes in anger because she doesn't know how to do it. I could go on. The further we dig, I think... We would have trouble finding any one sinful act 
that didn't have the alien power and the responsible guilt mingled together. So what happens? Like Adam and Eve from the garden, like Cain from the family, like all the families of the earth from the Tower of Babel, we have another example again where things mess up and somebody escapes into the wilderness. And that's the story the Israelites are feeling too. It got messy in Egypt and they escaped into the wilderness. That's where Hagar flees. She runs away. But this is not just a story of sin. This is a story of redemption. It shows God's heart to the Israelites who are being introduced to this God. What kind of God is it? Is it a God who's just for them and against everyone else? I want to notice a few things together. First, this angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. This character, uh, years ago, like maybe one of you will half remember this, but years ago, we did a series on the angel of the Lord. Remember that? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so, I know you do. Um, <clears throat> So who, who is this angel of the Lord? The, the angel of the Lord is this character who shows up at critical moments in Israel's story and, and sort of turns the story. And there's all these theories amongst Old Testament scholars about who the angel of the Lord is. Is it, is it Michael? Is it Gabriel? Is it, you know, some other angel? But when I look at these stories, so my opinion, you can test this out. You don't have to buy this. When I look at these stories, again and again, people speak to the angel like they're talking to God. At one time, the leader of Israel, Joshua, falls down and worships the angel when he meets him. When, it, when I see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, to me it seems pretty clear. This is, this is God appearing in personal form to his people. I think this is the the pre-incarnate Christ appearing. And so here's Hagar in the wilderness. And when the angel of the Lord shows up, friends, it is the first time in the Bible that the angel of the Lord shows up to somebody. That this character with this name shows up to someone and he shows up to an Egyptian maidservant who has run away from the chosen family. What does that tell you about the heart of God, about his compassion? Who does he go after? This is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. This is the picture that the people are getting of who their God is. He's for the poor, the oppressed, the ruined, and the runaways. And when they feel lost in the wilderness... They have this story to remind them that he's for them. And what does he do when he comes to her? He says, where are you headed? Where, where, have you from? where are you from? Where are you headed? <laughs> it's, he knows where she's from and where she's headed. But this is what God did in the Garden of Eden. Hey, why are you guys hiding? He does it throughout the rest of the biblical story, too. He, he meets Elijah, who's hiding from everyone in the wilderness. What are you doing here, Elijah? Like, it's the character of God, again, is on display. He comes in, in gracious, 
relational posture to us. Not, Hagar, you're here running from them, you're going back. But let's talk. Let me, like, friends, could we emulate God like this? And when we find someone in a, in a twisted, broken situation, whether it's their fault or someone else's or both, always, and we say, I'm curious about you. Tell me, tell me your story. This is what God does, and he knows the story. How much more should we? God is relational. Relationship is the pathway to redemption for her. The second thing we notice is in this redemption is that it is hard. The call that he gives her after this conversation is hard. None of us, if we're Hagar, would be thrilled at the command. Return to your mistress and obey her. What? But don't you know what they just did to me? Like that, that, why? Please. Is there any other place we could go? It feels hard. But you guys, God is unswervingly committed to his plan of redemption through broken people that he chooses beyond reason. Abram and Sarai are broken. They're making mistakes. They made a big mistake here. And yet God has a global plan of blessing the nations through them. And he's telling Hagar, go back and be connected to them. Remain connected to them. When Jesus is presenting how to be the church together, the only thing he tells us in Matthew chapter 18 for how to do church is how to deal with it when we sin against each other. He doesn't tell us how many staff positions we should have or how, how we should do marketing or, or you know, whatever. No. The way to be the church together is follow this process when we sin against each other. <laughs> Look at all the commands that Paul gives and Peter and, and John throughout the New Testament. Bear with each other. Forgive each other. Be patient with each other. You guys, we're Abram and Sarai now. We've been called together, and we're not to give up meeting, to, meeting together. That's what Hebrews 10 says. We don't give up meeting together. But guess what? Sometimes we're going to feel like Hagar. And we're going to sense that the Lord is telling us to go back and, and seek reconciliation, and it's going to stink. It's going to stink. And I know several of you in this room have done this with this congregation. Thank you for doing that. God's plan for redemption involves the sometimes baffling command to do it in covenant with his chosen people. But it's through these regularly broken and restored relationships that God seems to want to show the world what he's like. I mean, you guys know one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in John chapter 13. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's a preview of that command. Go back. Go back. 
in the midst of that going back, he does give her this promise. Like, the promise made to Abram will come true through Hagar. Her descendants will be as numerous as the stars. They will be too numerous to count. He says it twice. But it's going to be rough. Your son will be a wild donkey of a man. As she returns, she'll share in the blessing promised to Abram. Her son will be the fountain line, fountainhead of a line that continues to this very day. Perhaps you know that the Muslim people trace their heritage back to Ishmael. I don't know genealogically whether that's true or not. I haven't studied it. But that's what they do. They trace. So, you know, the, the Muslim world, this huge, diverse section of the human population, traces their lineage back to them. Like, what, to whatever extent that's true, it's what God said would happen here, isn't it? And friends, there are so many stories in the Muslim world where God is leaving the 99 to go after the one. It's a, I mean, there are stories coming out of Iran and Saudi Arabia that would blow your hair back. People who are meeting in their, alone in their house, they're about to commit suicide, they're in terrible situation, and suddenly a man in glowing white clothes comes and tells them to go and talk to so-and-so, who happens to be a Christian. It's remarkable, these stories roll in every day. I believe that God started a plan through Ishmael to glorify himself and glorify his son that is continuing today. He is using the Muslim world, our Muslim global neighbors, eventually to draw attention to Jesus. Many people say the fastest growing section of the church in the world right now is the underground church in Iran. I mean, he's still doing it. This is redemption. God's first direct involvement with this story is not with Abram and Sarai, it's with Hagar at the well. And he brings her no condemnation. He comforts her, he sees her, he hears her, he restores her to the family. You know, the start of Jesus' ministry, he goes to a well in the wrong part of town. And in the middle of the day, there's a woman from the wrong race there and she is alienated from her community. Why? Because she's caught in a messy, relational, sexual situation. No one, no one likes her. No one wants anything to do with her. And it is to her that Jesus first in the Gospel of John openly presents who he is. It's to her. This, this woman, he says, why are you even talking to me? He describes her life. And she goes back praising, saying, I just met a man who told me everything I ever did. God sees me and hears me. This, it's the same story again. Jesus promised her that through him was coming a day when God, by his spirit, would seek out every lost and ruined sinner and they would worship him in spirit and in truth no matter their background. It doesn't matter your family line. It doesn't matter your blood. It doesn't matter what has transpired in your life or the weird webs that you've gotten caught in. There is no valley too deep, no mountain too high. If you go down to the deepest abyss, 
God is there. If you go to the highest peaks, God is there. He knows your inmost being. He created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. This is the character of God presented. This is the character of God that Jesus presented at the table. Sarai hoped that her act would be sacrificial and would bring about God's promises. But it turned out that the one who had to bear the sacrifice was the weakest person in the room, Hagar. At the Last Supper, not only does Jesus say this bread represents his body and this blood, this cup, his blood, but he also then dresses as a servant and washes their feet. You're the weakest person in the room, embracing weakness. He brings our redemption. Let's pray. Father, I suspect there are people in this room who feel like they've gone in places that are too dark and too far and been in wilderness that's too far away. And I pray that right now in this moment, perhaps when they come to this table, perhaps sitting by your spirit, sitting in their chair right now, they would have a Hagar experience where you in your presence and person would come near and say, tell me your story. Thank you that you come to us in such compassion and humility. Thank you for your redemption, even though we are both responsible for our sin and stuck in a cycle of sin all the time. You are so merciful. Thank you for your rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.